Thank you, Brian. Let's uh, bow our heads and pray together for a moment, if we may. More love, more power. Lord, we want more of you in our life. And we pray that as we come to uh, this sacrament and hear again of your love, as we come now to your word and hear of the power that raised Jesus, we may reach uh, not for a new love or power beyond us, but in recognition of the love and power that is already working extraordinarily among us. And so lift our eyes to Jesus in word and sacrament tonight, we pray. Amen. Do please find Ephesians. That's where we are. We're in a series on Ephesians. Uh, Though there's a tradition that the, the gospel reading comes later. And we're on page 1173. If you've got a church Bible somewhere near you. In chapter 5 of uh, the letter to the Ephesians, Paul tells us to make the most of every opportunity, quote, because the days are evil. And I really want to begin by asking simply this question, are they? After all, many people in our society believe that they've never had it so good. And for one reason, one simple reason. Democracy has come to mean the right to think and say and do more and more of whatever you want to think, say and do without any kind of social restraint. A small example from this week. It's on my mind because I did a radio interview about it this morning on Radio Norfolk. And both people listening to Radio Norfolk at 8 o'clock this morning, have told me that they heard me. Uh, The brownies and guides will no longer do their best to do their duty to God, but rather now will be true to myself and develop my beliefs. Well, if you're an eight-year-old girl and you think that the world is actually and invisibly run by my little pony you are welcome now to think it. And indeed, responsible for developing that belief. What was a community belief in something bigger has become an individual belief in pretty much whatever you like. What's really scary is that Rainbows, the pre-Brownies group, they too are taking on a responsibility now to think about their beliefs. Those of you with uh, girls, uh, if you have any, between, uh, oh, I should think about three and seven, how many of them would recognize something they thought about as a belief if they tripped over it? Here's another example. A Norfolk village has a shoreline that is rapidly eroding. The villagers have decided to put up concrete barriers to help stop the sand being washed away. I read this during the week, and unfortunately I can't find a reference now to which the village is. I want to say it's Hemsby, but it might be Hopton. To fundraise, they're holding a village fair at which there will be two, not one, but two, psychic mediums. No doubt someone will say, oh, don't make a fuss, it's just a bit of fun. 
But I've got a friend who works in Norwich as a church minister on an estate with a lot of history uh, in the traveller community. And she is being asked more and more to go into people's houses and to put unquiet spirits to rest. When restraints are removed, the days become more evil. Even though just at the same time, many are rejoicing that they are getting more of what they wanted. And in such days, who is in charge? More importantly, I suppose, who do people think is in charge? In the Wonga world of money, the payday lenders, the high-cost lenders, are becoming more powerful because we ascribe huge power to money and lots of people need more of it. In the private world of sexual experiment in the UK, a quarter of men aged 18 to 24 worry that they are spending too much time on porn sites. That's a quarter worrying that they are spending too much time. How many then in the remaining three quarters are spending too much time? They're just not worrying about it. In the public worlds of politics and economics, science and power, we're fascinated by a a G8 conference and the difference that those guys, mostly guys, think they can make to tax regimes and to Syrian arms provision. Money, sex, power, they all exercise great influence and they can seem to be in charge. Now in Ephesus, it was very clear who was in charge. Artemis, the goddess, was worshipped with all kinds of magic arts and spells littered through the pages of the New Testament. You'll find references to Ephesus as a place of magic where the powers in the spiritual realms were worshipped and manipulated to achieve the desired ends. And against all that background, Paul comes and is equally clear. It is Jesus who is king. The Lord is Jesus. Jesus has been raised above all other powers. And as we start into our text this evening, I wanted to begin, therefore, by reminding us that a world in which other powers seem to be in charge is not a world that's passed away. It is still very much with us. Paul's conducting, in this passage, a kind of exercise in spiritual geography. For many of the Ephesians, humans are on the earth, and the powers above are in charge. So Paul, first of all, wants to establish that humans, well, at least us anyway, we are with Jesus Christ where he is, and where he is turns out to be far above where the other powers are. Just as last week, when Rebecca led us to looking at the seal of the Spirit that makes us gods, this week we look at the power of God in making us Christ's. Now early on in this chapter, in verse 3, Paul has praised God for giving us in Christ every spiritual blessing. Now really what this passage is about, verses 17 to 23, he's praying that we may understand the fullness of what those spiritual blessings mean. So, for 17 going into 18, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, see where this is going, the the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Father of glory may give us the Spirit of wisdom. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why would he, why, why would he do that? Is it just because he's, he's writing and he thinks he gets kind of brownie points from God if he kind of mentions all three in the same sentence? Unlikely. Paul normally reaches for these illustrations, these examples of the Trinity when he's trying to ground something in the very being of God, when he's trying to give us a new sense of security that uh, all of God is actually working on our behalf. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I wonder what you would give tonight. Seriously, I wonder what you would give if I could hold out to you a promise that you would know God better. If you could pay for it, what would you pay? If you could work for it, what effort would you put in? I told you you had to wait for it. How long would you wait? To know God better. Wouldn't that be something? And if that's what we're thinking, then it shows how quickly we have slipped into a kind of romantic, mystical idea of knowing God that is very far from the Scriptures. Hmm... It's Oriental, it's not Christian. In Scripture, to know God is not some kind of woozy, meditative state where you, on your own, are in touch with the divine alone. To know God in Scripture is to know his benefits, what he has done. So when the Old Testament speaks of wisdom, it means not a a kind of hmm, but it means a knowing of his ways in creation, in redemption, a knowing of what he has done and the footprints he has left in creation and, and down through history. To know him better is not something we have to pay for, to work for, to wait for. It is simply coming to an appreciation of what was already there for us as a spiritual blessing but in the scriptures. And what's surprising as we move on from that into verse 18 is perhaps the focus on God. It might be nice we get another little trinity not related uh, so easily to the persons of the trinity. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Then here it comes. In order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and know his incomparably great power for us who believe. And so we think, well, that would be nice. It'd be nice to uh, know about our hope, our inheritance, and our power. But actually, when you look at them a little more closely, and I have to say it's a, it's a very long sen- single sentence in the original, and, and it, 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 you, you kind of find yourself trying to navigate your way through one single sentence. But all of those things are God's. First of all, it's the hope to which God has called you. Paul's looking to the day when the whole creation will see what God's already been working out all along, the calling of a mighty people to be his own in his son. And God is the one 
with the inheritance. His holy people, his saints, they are themselves his inheritance. So I think we probably read that and say to ourselves, oh great, we've got an inheritance. There's something good that God has got for us still to come. And that would be quite good, and there are parts of Scripture that tell us about that. But it's not what he means here. Just read what it actually says. It isn't that there's an inheritance of something else that's for God's people. God's people are it. It's not that there are the riches of God that might be given to us. We are it. We ourselves, the saints of God. We are the riches of God. I don't normally tell you stories of saints, but let me tell you a story of St. Lawrence. Uh, Towards the end of the third century, um, the Pope in Rome, uh, still quite new to the idea of popes, so kind of, you know, strip your ideas of, you know, current popes. But anyway, the Pope was uh, Sixtus. Um, the, um, the new emperor, Valerian, um, was a baddie, I think, you know, black hat, um, and uh, uh, expelled uh, all the Christians and uh, destroyed everything he could of the Christian community. And one of the things he did was to um, uh, take from them, just expropriate, all the wealth uh, that was. There wasn't a great deal because it was still a relatively poor community, but such as it was, it was held in common. And Lawrence was... Uh, uh, had been appointed as one of the deacons. Deacons tended to be in charge of the treasury, and uh, Lawrence uh, was in charge of what money there was. So the edict came from uh, the, uh, the emperor in Rome uh, to uh, destroy the Christian community and to take all their money. And Lawrence negotiated uh, to have three days to be allowed to gather the um, uh, money from the Christian community in Rome. Uh, in that three days, in fact, what he did was to send it as far as he could, quickly as he could. Um, and so when they came for him and they said, show us the riches of uh, this Christian church. Uh, Lawrence famously uh, showed them empty money bags and then pointed out to them the blind and the poor and the crippled that were in the church and said, there are the riches of Christ's church. The poor, the crippled, the blind. They are the riches of God. And for his pains, he was then uh, roasted alive. We are the inheritance of God. And then lest any Ephesians are thinking of other powers, because it was Ephesus, after all, Paul says no. The power of God is for us who believe. It's not around whether you can manipulate with rituals the magic powers that you think are out there. It's for us who simply put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it's a point he goes on to say some more about. Because that power at work in us who believe is the power that's in this mighty movement that takes over the passage, really, from uh, verse 20 all the way through to verse 22. The powers like the working of his mighty strength, first, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Most superstition, most of the psychic medium stuff, ends up relating to the dead. Go to the cathedral 
and go to the little board that they say, that they hold, and say, would you like us to pray for you during morning prayer? And of course, all kinds of people go through the cathedral who who have no part in a normal Christian church. And nearly every prayer that's on that board relates to someone who's dead. But Jesus has been raised from the dead. And then he goes on to say, and seated him at, the right, at his right hand. God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Often enough, we think of the resurrection following the cross. But do we think as much as we should of the ascension and the moment when Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father? Not standing like all the angels and the saints of God down the ages in honor of God. But God is in honor of Jesus, who al- and, and God allows Jesus to sit in his own presence because the work is done. Where is this, verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion? Far above every title that can be given. Well, of course, I say, of course, no reason, I hope you don't know, but one of the things that goes on in magic normally is trying to find the name of, of the, the, um, the spirit you're dealing with. Once you've got the name of the spirit you're dealing with, you can say something uh, to that spirit and get that spirit to do something for you. So this is far above the attempts of humanity to get what it wants by finding the right name for the right power. This is above all names and titles. And this is power that's at work now, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come, verse 21. Now, in the overlap of the ages, but also in the age to come, when no other power will even be seen on the field of play, and the days will no longer be evil. That's one of the reasons beyond mere compassion, though compassion would be enough. It's one of the reasons beyond mere compassion why Jesus engages in the kind of... uh, a moment that we heard in the Gospel reading from St. Luke. A demon who is rebuked, who is not just asked politely if he would leave, he is rebuked because his time with power and dominion and authority is over. Well, then we go on to verse 22. Uh, and because of uh, what uh, God, the status God gives to Jesus, Jesus now already has all things under his feet, that's one psalm, and his head over everything, that's another psalm. But then there's this odd phrase, for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And we're over the page now in in the end of verse 22. In what sense is this for the church? And it seems to me that this might work. Objectively, Jesus is now appointed as head over every thing. But his being head doesn't make everything into his body. He is the head, but it doesn't mean that everything else is his body. The cosmos as the body of God was a pagan idea. It's not a Christian one. And just because he is Lord, the head, doesn't mean that everything in the cosmos welcomes him as Lord. On the contrary, the days are evil. And the powers and rules are not willingly finding their place. Christ is appointed over them, keeping them under his feet. Remember the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples? It's a position, and we've learned probably 
in lots of tellings of the story that a slave would be given because your feet stank in those environments. And the powers and the rulers are put under Jesus' feet. Yes, he does have a body, but that's his people, those who welcome his lordship. It's the cosmos, everything that doesn't welcome it, but he's head over it anyway, but in his body we do welcome it. And seen as his body, it's like the church is the fullness of everything, crowding out the available space, pushing the other powers to the margins. He is with his people in fullness forever, and no power can vanquish them or them in him. I don't don't think this passage is meant to touch us remotely. If we feel no sense of threat in the world, if you are going to go into your week confidently, the master or the mistress of your own destiny, with the world at your feet and your future in your own hands, then I would turn to other passages to humble you, not this one. This is for those who know that it can seem all too easily as though the days are evil, as though there are influences and powers at work to whom we are mere playthings. Now, it's unfortunate. Ephesians is just a a classic of the case of, of a letter. It's unfortunate when we treat Ephesians 1 to 3, and of course, in churches, when you're going through these letters bit by bit, you, you go through 1 to 3 before you hit 4 to 6, and then by the time you hit 4, you've kind of forgotten 1 to 3. And it's a shame when it's 1 to 3, that's theology about God, and then, verses, then chapters 4 to 6 with some quite helpful comments on how to live as a believer. On the contrary, when we're in 1 to 3 like we are now, we need to remember that chapters 4 to 6 are coming. And when we're in 4 to 6, we should remember that we only got there via chapters 1 to 3. You needn't leave the, um, look these up unless you particularly want to, uh, uh, want to. You might just be able to trust me on these. In chapter 4 and verse 26, we're told not to be angry. Chapter 5, verse 18, we're told not to get drunk. In chapter 6, verse 9, we're told not to threaten our workers. There are all kinds of very ordinary little circumstances in life in which it seems tiny little victories or losses are at stake. But remember our passage tonight when we get to those later. When we refuse anger, when we refuse drunkenness, when we refuse to threaten, the power that is at work in us to change is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And when Jesus looks at us winning a tiny victory, he does not say, minor matter, not impressed. He rejoices that what is at work in you and me is the same power that raised him from the dead. It could not be otherwise. There isn't a kind of first gear power that enables you to win those little victories, but a cruising speed power that does the big stuff. It's not a different power. It's all the same power. And there's a danger in reading this passage that has surprised me this week. It's an incredibly grand passage. 
And there's a danger of reading it in a grand way, a romantic, a mystical way, a wow way, as though it's speaking of something way beyond our everyday lives, a a power that I don't know, but golly, it would be terrific if I could. The truth I've come to see is otherwise. It's simply drawing back the curtain to tell me that that tiny thing that I know about and I'm never going to tell you about that happened last week, that tiny victory was because of the power behind the resurrection. Even the baby steps that we feel we are involved in are because of the power of the resurrection. It is not a soap opera on television miles from my own life. It is the story simply, these verses, of how God sees my life. Can we... um... Marvellous. Thank you. John. Okay. Rather, it's the story of how God sees my life. This is about the dramas going on that went on last week in our ordinary daily lives that I don't normally think to appreciate because how else do you think you put that habit behind you if it isn't by the power of the resurrection of the one who raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to his right hand in glory. As a final illustration, let's just consider what it is we do here tonight. The bread that we break is, we know, the sign of the body broken on the cross. The wine that we pour out is, we know, the sign of the life poured out for us. Well, commemorating that death seems a very odd thing to do if we base ourselves in verses 17 to 23, with all their glory and trumpets and thunder. But actually, verses 17 to 23 are telling me of the very power that is at work as I understand more of the wisdom of God, what he's done in Jesus, and his revelation, what he shows me of what he's done in Jesus. The cross is the victory by which Christ conquers the powers of death and hell, all the other powers in the heavenly realms and the psychic mediums and the nonsense of what brownies are being asked to believe. The cross is where Jesus wins the right to a people who will be his forever. And then in his arms, as resurrected and ascended, he takes them with him and gives them a place with and in him beside the Father, secure from all threat and harm. So come to the bread and wine tonight, rejoicing that here God reminds you that you are his, that nothing can separate you from his love and, yes, from his power. For all things are under the feet of Jesus and we are his body. Let's pray. More love, more power, more of you in my life. Lord, we sang it and we meant it. And we ask not for the the grand experience, though maybe your will to give us those too. But what we long for is to understand with the veil 
in a sense, just slightly parted. The love and the power that has already been at work in the last week, in the last month, perhaps in the last hour, as we have become more like Jesus. And so when we are in doubt, and when we find ourselves thinking, oh, that's another world, it could never be for me, renew our faith that it is precisely for us as sinful human beings that Jesus Christ has died. It is precisely for us that Jesus Christ is risen. And it is precisely us who are the inheritance of God himself, his saints, his holy ones. Amen.